0: Hello, Catherine here. If you're listening to my podcast because you're a fan of wintering, the good news is that my new book, Enchantment, is available now. It's a book about how we can find a way to reconnect with a world that's sometimes hard to live in and even to find magic there. It's available in all good bookshops and please support your local indie if you can. For more information, you can go to catherine-may.com forward slash enchantment. Happy reading. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hello, I'm Catherine May, and welcome to the Wintering Sessions, the podcast that sets out to learn from the times when life is frozen. This week, I'm talking to Josie George, author of the memoir, A Still Life. Josie has always lived with a complex of medical conditions that are difficult to name, but which leave her permanently in pain and having to carefully manage her mindset and energies in order to cope with everyday life. Here, she talks about the joys she finds in small things and the vibrant appreciation for life that her restrictions have given her. Josie, welcome to the podcast. It's so lovely to have you. You were definitely one of the people that I just knew for sure that I had to I had to get you on here because I think all of your work and not just your forthcoming book articulate so much about times out of life and, you know, times permanently out of life as well.
1: Yeah, thank you. I'm so pleased to be here. I was really chuffed to be asked, so thank you very much. Ah, oh, well, it's
0: this is this is the great joy of having a podcast. You get to invite people who you admire and make them talk to you for half an hour.
1: <laughs> <laughs> also, I have to say, it's just so nice to talk to someone. <laughs> I don't get many opportunities to have like chats with adults so it's just really nice so yeah you should start a podcast (laughs) well maybe I will yes you should (laughs) chats it's really brilliant so
0: your new book A Still Life is really all about growing up with I mean does chronic illness cover it correctly or how would you describe it
1: I guess so I think I always struggle with the terminology of things. So mm-hmm. I think I have a chronic illness, but particularly because it's been lifelong for me, I would describe it also as a disability in that it yeah. has such an impact on all areas of my life and has done forever. So chronic illness doesn't seem to quite cover it. And also, I don't mm-hmm. really like the word illness because actually I feel like part of my work and my well, part of what I enjoy in life is is being well. It's just that mm-hmm. my idea of wellness isn't quite the same as perhaps other people's.
0: It would be really nice if we had the term chronic wellness. Yeah. I'm chronically well. I'm I just chronically not well. being
1: well. Yeah. <laughs> and as much as it is a dysfunction of my body, my body does not work the same way as most other people's. I'm not dying. I am hopeful that I will live a long and relatively active life on my in my own terms mm. but there is no denying that my body struggles a lot and that is a big part of every day so so yes a chronic illness but with the caveat that I aspire to wellness and I believe that is within my my grasp even if I never get better I shall be well and that's um yeah yeah that's important to me and of course
0: I mean you know, you said about the, the, you know, the problems of terminology, there's an even bigger terminology problem for you, isn't there, in that it's very hard to pin down, you know, you don't have that condition that everyone has a name for that they all recognise and go, ah, that's what's wrong with her. Okay, we understand that.
1: Yeah, I am such a mishmash of of different (laughs) things going on. And we still don't fully understand it. And I spent much of my, well, certainly my teens and my 20s, really hoping that I would get a name that I could mm. pin to my chest and say, this is why I find life hard. Uh, this is this is the thing. And everyone could look at it and go, Ah, oh, yeah, now we understand. But yeah. as the decades have gone on, I've had to more and more let go of that. I mean, there are there are some names we could use. M E and chronic fatigue syndrome was one of the first Sort of diagnoses that I received when I was very young. And mm. then it, it kind of shifted. Some years they would th- they would say, oh you know, that's what's going on. And then other years they'd go, well, you don't really fit that. Maybe, maybe it isn't that. As I got into my 30s, I developed more and more problems with my autonomic system which is the, the part of your body that controls all the, the kind of automatic parts of you, your, your blood flow, your heart rate, your blood pressure, all the things that happen without you thinking about it in your body is, is connected to your autonomic system. And um, that began to deteriorate more and more for me in lots of different ways. So then they were starting to introduce the idea of dysautonomia or POTS, which means postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. But all these things, they just kind of describe what's happening. They don't tell you yeah, why. Yeah. So they're a bit meaningless really in some respects, which is hard because I think we're hardwired as human beings to want to understand so that's been a difficult thing to get my head around over the years I don't know why I'm like this and I may never will
0: yeah yeah
1: so how do you keep going when that is true um has been a big question for me
0: it's so complicated and I think I mean I I had a diagnosis of ME when I was a teenager but I recovered after a period of rest and you know it's kind of part of the life pattern of um autistic people in general yeah very much but I know at the time that you know and I'm sure it's still true now that it was the kind of condition that people had an opinion about people who knew nothing about it oh goodness yes <laughs> had an opinion about it about its reality about your right to have it about what you should do to solve it which was normally you know pull your bootstraps up or whatever it is <laughs> saying, get on with it you know, there's something about having a, a an illness or a disability that does not have a name that's on a, on a national charity that makes people behave quite badly around it. I think sometimes. oh, very
1: much. I mean, my I love my cardiologist. He's he's amazing and he's very much on my side and works really hard to make me feel heard and and to work with me on different options. But even he sat there and he said, oh, "I I don't think Emmy's real. I don't chronic fatigue. It's it's." <laughs> You know, and I'm say, like, oh well, okay, but okay. So, so what what have I experienced then? And it, it is hard because what people are saying is that they don't believe that your experience is well. What you hear is, I don't believe your experience is real in some mm-hmm. way, which is very hard. And when I was younger, I used to find that very distressing. Yeah. I used to used to find it quite traumatic um, to to sit in front of doctors and be told, well, what. What you think you have isn't real, um, mm-hmm. or, or what you're—that you know, this name that you that you're using isn't—we don't think it's a real thing. These days, I, I I don't feel so emotional about it. I've worked through a lot of that. My answer yeah. tends to be, "Well, okay, but I am still enormously I'm fatigued still still. every day, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> and I still have a lot of pain, and I still can't do all these things." So whether or not we give it a name, it's still true. And I yeah. don't really care these days what it's called. What I care about is how do I live well and how do I get the support and accommodations, I guess, but but how, how do I build a life around my reality of my body, mm. irrespective of what we call it? My days are still the same. So that's what I tend to come at it from now. But it's hard. It's It's really painful when you you feel like you're being told you're either lying or overdramatic or or just yeah, weak yeah. or just weak I think that's often the thing that I've come away from doctors mm. saying well you know everybody gets tired <laughs> and you're like oh okay <laughs> like, yeah I right. know, <laughs> I yeah, know. <laughs> this is, yeah this is a bit different mm.
0: and I you know I think what that speaks to is like the is actually how unstable medicine itself is. We don't realise it because medicine feels like a stable thing within our lifetime, but actually it's in constant flux Yeah. and diagnoses and our understanding of disease and illness and disability are changing all the time. And there has always been a, a kind of cluster of, of conditions or experiences that have been written off and gradually, we find an account of them, but if you're born in the wrong part of history where there is not yet an account of what you have, you have to go through all this nonsense.
1: Frankly, yeah, absolutely. And it's been it's been interesting in recent months to see the the news and talk about long COVID.
0: Mm, I've been I've been glued to that.
1: Yeah, which in all res- I mean, from what I can see in terms of symptoms and experience. Is so similar to what people with, with chronic fatigue syndrome or similar illnesses yeah. have been reporting for decades. And it's interesting to see it now lifted to the to a place of legitimate disease. To be real.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and to and to be researched already. I mean, the stuff they've found out already about the Amazing. the way that the bodies of people with long COVID are behaving. Yeah. I mean, I could have, you know, anyone that's had a a sort of post-viral thing, you know, like ME or or all of the different kind of post-viral conditions would have killed for for that that understanding of what was going on in their body. Absolutely. And suddenly we're motivated.
1: Yeah, it leaves me, it leaves me feeling quite conflicted because I, Mm. I'm left with this enormous sympathy and, and just care and heartbreak for people going through this because I know what this is like you've lived it. yeah mm. um and then also this weird anger of like oh it was okay for me to be sick for 30 years why yeah. is it not okay now and yeah, reconciling that has been quite tricky, really, last few weeks.
0: Mm, lots of things to reconcile. Um, mm. Let's go back and, and start a little earlier in this story, because actually your kind of unexplainable symptoms started really young, didn't they?
1: Yeah, I was only a baby, really, and, and back and forth to paediatricians and developing weird problems with my legs, bones. And they're still not sure whether there is an element of connective tissue disorder or a genetic component but but I was never quite right as my mum likes to put it (laughs) Um, and it's true and some of that seemed to be I don't think I've ever been particularly neurotypical either um, Mm -hmm. and experienced the world in quite a different way and all of this intersected in my body and how my body felt things so from yeah from a very young age I was I was having to live in a body that didn't seem to do what it was supposed to and did wild things that I didn't understand and that seemed to be very much out of my control, um, which was very disorientating as a child.
0: And it's difficult to fit into the community of other kids at school or, you know, in, in the streets around your house when your body isn't functioning in the same way that theirs is.
1: Honestly, I just never talked about it with my friends, really. They knew I was Mm. off school a lot and there was probably a sense that I was a bit tired and not as energetic (laughs) as other children. Um, And then once I started going in and out of hospital, that was obviously made it a bit more visible. But it never occurred to me that I was part of anything. I never considered myself ill, particularly. I never considered myself disabled because I had no frame of reference. This was just my life. And... I didn't have a before when I was well all the time and an after to compare it to. So for a long time, it it didn't really occur to me how different I was. And it it just kind of manifested often as a a kind of insecurity around Mm -hmm. people and friends and feeling like the world moved at a different pace to me and that I missed out. And because it was very very sporadic to start with. I had much more of a, you know, I'd have a good few weeks, a bad few weeks. It was, it was a bit more up and down. I just, I just kind of, I would forget as soon as I got better again, I would be back to doing all the things I want to do. And I'd say, oh, I don't want to think about that now, you know? And, Mm. um, it was only as the periods of unwellness and, and problems got longer and more visible and, and serious that I began to feel it more as part of my identity and wonder what mm. that meant because again no one was telling me oh you have this thing this is why um it was it was all very confusing all the time so my my childhood was i think really colored by that confusion and yeah
0: and uncertainty
1: just not being sure of who i was yeah or what this all meant well i suppose you know if you have an unnamed condition you don't get
0: given that account of it that you can adopt in any kind of a stable way, in in a way that other people receive. You know, you don't have something to process. You don't have a prognosis. You don't have a sense of how that will take shape into the future. That must be really difficult to, to live with, actually.
1: Yeah, yeah, it was. And there was this, there seemed to be this weird thing all the time as well, that almost if somebody gave you a name, then that stuck you in a course or mm. a particular future it was almost like everyone was reluctant to say what was happening in the yeah as if it was some kind of bad spell that was then cursing me to a lifetime of this but actually all it did was was left me like I said very insecure and confused and, and I didn't get better I, I continue to have these problems and have had you know it still do um, it's now the, the times of, of wellness are now I have to wait years for them now, decades. Right. It's it's this particular patch of of certainly losing my mobility um has been about seven years now without a break, which is the longest the longest spell I've had without a lift. So all of that that mm, well we don't we don't want to you know kind of limit you or or put these these labels on you. It didn't help me because no. I'm still here still living it. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it was it it has been strange. Um, and a real journey, a mental journey because there did come a point where I I had to realize no one is going to define this for me. Yeah. No one is going to tell me what my future is going to be like or what I need to do. I'm going to have to do that myself. And and when did that come for you? That point in your life when this began
0: to solidify as a permanent thing, but also almost part of your identity, part of part of what what you are, what your body does.
1: I think I fought it for a long time, and mm. I talk about that a lot in the book. Really, about how my life followed this this kind of circular, spiraling process, where I would have maybe two or three years of very, quite severe disability, um, mm. which I would fight tooth and nail from to recover from. So I would lose my mobility. I wouldn't really be able to walk. My energy levels would be almost non-existent. So the 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 amount that I could do was was minuscule, um, and I'd have all this range of quite bizarre and very disruptive symptoms that would that would take over each day. And I'd I'd have two or three years of that. And I would will myself better, or I felt like I was willing myself better, and then it would be a case of well when I get better I will do this and when I get better this will be my life and and then I'll then I'll live then I'll get started. And the the bad patches lasted like I said a year, two years three years and they'd get longer each time. And then I'd have a bit of a reprieve in the middle. Things seemed to improve a little bit and um, I would leap back to life and be like, right, <laughs> this is it, this is my chance. Here we go. <laughs> I'm better I'm leaving it all behind. And I never learned for a long time. I ne- Every time I got better, I thought, this is it. I am fixed. I am good. I am I am healed. I have conquered this. Yeah, yes. yeah that's it. I have won. Because this is the stories we tell, isn't it, about what yeah. happens. So off I would go again and make all these plans and be very ambitious. And within sometimes even just a few months or a year again, um, a couple of years at most, I would begin to crash again begin to get mm-hmm. worse. And that happened again, about, like I said, about seven years ago. I'd i been slowly tipping and I could feel myself struggling more and more. And it, it just got worse and worse until I couldn't put one foot in front of the other, really, um, to, to that extent. But I think at that point I was mentally ready. And this time I thought, no, I, it, it's time to face this and to to not wait to get better. Let's live now. Let's not wait anymore. And so that's what I've done really. And that's, that's what's brought me here. So I I think in the last, yeah, certainly in the last 10 years really has been more of a path to peace. Whereas my twenties was just, just that constant battle back and forth. Um, Mm, Streaming against it. Yeah. Now I feel much, much more at peace with things and, and I, I feel equipped to know how to live with this now and to mm. live well. Um and who knows what the future holds. I always stay open to another time of wellness, maybe. Maybe that will be in the future, maybe it won't. But it doesn't matter anymore. My yeah. my life yeah, isn't waiting life. for that. And yeah. All of the things that matter to me can continue irrespective of whether or not I improve again. That feels like a really strong place to be now. Yeah. We'll be
0: back with more from Josie in a moment. But first, I want to tell you about my online course, Wintering for Writers, which is back online after a successful first run last summer. Wintering for Writers is designed to be a beautiful, reflective process for writers who are currently struggling as so many are in this pandemic year. If you're feeling blocked or are losing hope, it's packed with videos and thought-provoking texts to help you rethink your practice, and there's an exclusive workbook to support your reflection. Best of all, you can work at your own pace and in complete privacy as you write yourself back into your creative flow. To find out more, go to katherinemay.com and click on Courses, or follow the link in the show notes. And now, back to Josie George. So when you when you reach that point of acceptance what did that mean for you in practice what changes did you make
1: It was kind of not waiting anymore it it was like a kind of mental shift really to work with what I had and work with where I was today however bad that was and every yeah. day to do the same so never have a day where I think I'm going to wait until I'm a bit better So right. Always to deal with with where I am that day, whatever that looked like, and if that meant making a new plan every day, so be it. Mm-hmm. But so I committed to movement. I think I, I committed to motion, forward motion, even if that was going to have to be a snail's pace um, forever. Yeah. Or I wasn't going to sit and wait and sit out this life anymore. Um, I, I was going to make stuff happen. So I I think that was, it was a real mental shift and that some of that meant very practical things. So it meant the decision when I, when I completely lost my, my mobility had just waned and waned and, and, and Mm. I was just the distance I could walk was getting shorter and shorter and pain was increasing. And I think if that had been me, well, certainly when it was me, um, maybe 15, 20 years ago, I would have just stopped. Whereas this time it was about adapting and there was much more of a a commitment to adaptation. So how can I still do these things, but in a different way, which meant the mobility scooter, it meant walking sticks, it meant wheelchair, it meant aids and adaptations around the house. Um, It meant changing my job at the time. So it meant changing things rather than stopping things, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it does. It makes a lot of sense, actually. And uh, even if those changes had to be huge and almost unrecognisable, I I hadn't quit anything. And I I had shifted course and changed course and not stopped. And that was really important to me. Mm. And I mean, you're...
0: You're a great kind of appreciator of the small and of the minutiae of life and you you have a you seem to have a particular skill in finding the wonder in the world even at your most limited. Is that something you've always had or is that something you've trained yourself to to come to an appreciation of?
1: A bit of both, I think. I have I think naturally a very curious, open, joyful mind. I I, I think I feel very lucky in that. I I think I I just find things delightful I, I just I'm so easily pleased and I find it so easy to enjoy something small um but I think part of it, it has been work and it has been discipline. I think mm. not so much developing the curiosity because I, I think that that is there naturally, and I think it's there in all of us really. I think it's about more working on removing the things that get in the way of that mindset, so that mindset can flourish all by itself. And I, I think that's been that's been the work, and that's that's been what I've had to do. So it's also it's what happens naturally when you are truly still and yeah, i think yeah. we we con ourselves into thinking that we're being still and paying attention and we're not we're our minds are elsewhere we're we're half we've got half foot in the future and we're dreaming about this and we're we're not satisfied really with how things are so we're not really committing to it um, we're, 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 we've always got this sense of expectation or um, assessment in our head about whether this moment measures up in some way to to an ideal or, or something that we prefer. And that truly open, still place is really rare. Yeah. But if you find it, or if you're forced to find it, um, which is what often happens with illness you you really do start to see things differently because you have to there's nothing else to look at. it's all you've got. I think it's actually I would go further than you. I think few people
0: find it without something going horribly wrong in their life, and yeah,
1: yeah shocking. yeah
0: yeah it you know you'll you have to be dragged there kicking and screaming almost because. The pleasures of the outside world are so great, and the the distractingness of the outside world is so great. And actually, it is one of the hidden gifts of of illness and and mental illness, physical illness, disability. You know, like I never want to be the person that goes, "Oh, it's all such a gift; it's all wonderful," because it isn't. But I think there is a oh, how would you say it, a quality of attention that is found by people who. Have to spend a lot of time in quietness and stillness, even if that didn't come through choice.
1: Yeah, and I mean, you know, we have to put up with so much horrible stuff. We might as well take this one gift, right? And this one, yeah, you should be allowed it and celebrate it. Like, yeah, I mean, I think, I think we we get to own this. This is this is fine. It's I we get to put up with enough of the the drawbacks that we can celebrate the positives. Um, Definitely. Yeah, and and it does it once you find it it's it's almost like a it's like learning to hear a sound and it's tuning in to a certain note in your environment and if you you tune into and you're like oh that's that's what that feels like and Mm -hmm. I think once you find it and then you you find it more and more often and that it becomes this this kind of yeah, this, this this tone that you can start to tune into and hear and, and, and experience more and more. And then you think, wow, I why would I ever live another way? <laughs> this is <laughs> so much better. And I, what I
0: think is really interesting as well is that we are constantly these days sold this version of mindfulness that has to be achieved through an app. Or f- through a, you know, an expensive luxury retreat or <laughs> whatever, and I think that that just takes people further and further away from that encounter that that uh, that flow that you that you find and that you never lose once you found it. You know, it, it becomes a place that you can always wade into. Like I, I always think of it as like a river that's running in the background. Yeah. That yeah. once you know it's there, it's available to you. Yeah, but you you don't come to it by throwing money at the situation and telling everybody that you're so in the moment, you know, <laughs> like, no. and and then and then a few years time, you know, people are saying, oh, well, I tried meditation, but I never really, it never really did anything for me. It's like that's because you were never forced to find the patience to let it let it operate.
1: No, and it is a discipline. I mean, it's I think it's a paradox, really, because I I think in in one sense it is our natural state. You look Mm -hmm. at children playing and they've got it, you know, they've, they're there. They have got, that they are what we are aspiring to when we talk about mindfulness. They are just completely Mm -hmm. here in this moment. And as we grow up and life gets more complicated and our minds are just bombarded with more and more influence and messages, and it just gets harder and harder because there's just so much kind of mental baggage that gets in the way of this state but actually it was there we we always knew how to do this it's just that a normal active human life doesn't encourage it in fact it it does the opposite it takes you far away from that place um Mm. so so it's it is it is on in one sense very very natural i think
0: i so agree i so agree and i think it's actually one of the one of the parts of consciousness that is open to us and it's open to us all the time and it's always been open to us
1: yeah absolutely and we've
0: got further and further away from it
1: yeah and the more thing that we, we are surrounded constantly by things and stories and um, habits that pull us away from it and we're so entrenched in it that we just don't we don't know that that's what's happened it's just it's our status quo so we don't we don't don't think about it so it, these days it takes real work. It's quite, it feels quite revolutionary these days to be someone that doesn't fall into that mindset and that is able to step out of it. It does feel special because I think it's rare, but it's always possible. It's not, it's about rediscovering a skill. It's, and, and that takes work and patience and discipline, but it's not impossible. It's, it's not like learning to play a sport or some complicated (laughs) instrument it's like it's not a new skill it's 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 about re-remembering and and almost reinforcing a very a very old skill um which is great Mm -hmm. because it means it's possible for all of us but yeah it's it's hard and Like you were saying, I think it's so easy for it to get dressed up in the trappings of all the other problems of like, of it being a bit of a commodity, mindfulness being something or a game that you play or a a business um, idea or something that you, you make part of your brand um, in order to sell something (laughs) or like, but, but actually I'm a big fan of, of Sam Harris who uh, teaches um, mindfulness and meditation in a very different way from some of the kind of I, I call it co- like commercial mindfulness. He's he's quite blunt mm. in his in his like no this is this isn't how we do it this isn't what mindfulness is and and getting back to the kind of core of it and I listened to a great thing that he said this morning. I I get little like voice from uh, like updates from him. And and this was a little recording that he did, which is that for all that you, you say that you're mindful or say that you're meditating or say that you haven't meditated or you boast that you've done this much meditation or, you know, that you're a very mindful person, all of that kind of stuff. None of that matters because the only time that you can truly honestly be mindful is now is right now in this moment so the question that you have to ask yourself is is where is my mind at now right now and am i aware of my own mind in this moment and if you are then you're being mindful and you're meditating or and you're you're working actively towards that life and if if you're not aware of your mind however many minutes of meditation you might have done you're not achieving it it's we've only got now to be mindful and and the test as it were as to whether or not you're a mindful person or whether or not you're this meditation guru or whatever else, is where are you now? And where is your attention right in this minute? And that's Mm. the question Mm. that we ask every minute and every day and every hour. And we lose it. And sometimes we think, oh God, yeah, no, I was, uh, I have not done well today in staying present. I've been ruminating or I've been worried, you know, I've been worrying. I've been distracted. I've been trying to do five things at once and doing none of them very well. And you get days like that. And then you get days where you think you catch it before you start doing that. And you think, ah, no, I'm not going to do that today. <laughs> I'm going to come back to my hands in the washing up liquid water. And I'm going to come back to this cup of tea or the sound of my son's voice or the feel of my body. And and every moment that you manage to do that, you are being mindful and you are, you're kind of winning that game. That yeah. and And that's the only way to do it. And
0: and I think, I mean, that takes me so beautifully to the thing that I get from your work over and over again, which is this sense of the infinite in tiny things, this sense of the way that you pay attention, expanding minute parts of life into something grand and beautiful.
1: Oh, there is so much. I mean, I get I get overwhelmed. I mean, I've barely left my house this year and my house is small. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's, it's not a big place. And I have barely seen a soul. And yet I have been overwhelmed by how much there has been. I mean, like, I have been every day when I go to bed, I think, oh, I didn't do that. And oh, I could have done something on that. There is no shortage of things to study and enjoy and pour over and explore. I mean, it is it really is infinite and i love i love that i am a bit addicted to that sense of how much <laughs> i can find in in restriction and i it's i think an ongoing theme of my work and will be is that if you draw a box around something and i take my life as an example if there is quite a tight box around my life not only in terms of physically where i can get to but mm. in terms of in terms of energy, how much I can do and how much is available to me each day. So if I take that box and I accept that box and I see its edges, and then instead of looking out, gazing outside of the box and thinking, oh, all of that out there that I'm not getting and I'm not (laughs) doing. And oh, if I shift my gaze into that tiny space, however small, and use that as the springboard for my work my inspiration my entertainment my enjoyment that is a wonderful challenge and i i actually get a lot of satisfaction from from doing that and seeing what i can do and it's a theme that runs through not only my work in terms of my autobiographical work but in mm. in terms of my my more creative work in fiction and art and um other things that that I do so um yeah I think that's a real theme for me
0: yeah and I I'd like to close by quoting a line from your work back at you which I think really captures what you've just said which I underlined you know in my pen in my in your book which is um pay attention be brave use the truth write it down that will always be enough I think that's such a lovely rule to live by.
1: Yeah, thank you. And it's enough. It's enough to get you through every day. It really is. It takes some courage and it takes some real gentleness with yourself because it's not easy, but it's a really rich place to live from. And yeah, there is a lot there. Mm, Josie, thank you so much. It's been such a wonderful conversation.
0: And I'll make sure that in the show notes, there's everything that people need to find a copy of your book, but also to find you online where you give us all a daily dose of this wisdom it's not just
1: sporadic for you
0: there's a there's a constant flow of it
1: (laughs) oh thank you there's lots planned and new things coming so yeah please please do that would be great thank you
0: and that's all from us today thank you so much to Josie George for offering such a beautiful insight into her mindset A Still Life is available in all good bookstores and you can follow Josie on Instagram or Twitter. Links are in the show notes. I'll be back next week with another brilliant writer who is intimate with Winter. Thanks for listening.
1: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things.